are listening to a sermon podcast from St. Benedict's Table, a congregation of the Anglican Church of Canada located in Winnipeg, Manitoba. May only truth be spoken and only truth received. Amen. I believe it was nine years ago when our three-year lectionary cycle brought this gospel reading before us as it always does every three years. Someone came to me just prior to the liturgy to say that she had almost not come to worship that evening. She was a divorced person and one who really hoped that she'd have a second chance at building a, a new marriage that would last But she was just afraid that Jesus wasn't leaving her any room for anything but loneliness and judgment. The words that filled her with sorrow were, of course, these ones. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce, but... I say to you that anyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of unchastity, causes her to commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. There seems no room here for much aside from seeing divorce as a kind of adultery, and it left that person in a place of pain. Divorce. A breach of all of the hopes of marriage is a source of pain, no doubt. I know this, and I know it firsthand. You don't stand in front of a community of friends and family and avow yourself to another person so long as you both shall live and not mean it. Sure, a wedding day can be fraught with nervousness and a sense of the gravity of it all, but it's also the celebration of a new beginning for both partners and a sign of hope even in the face of an unknown future. We say that we embrace this other person, this beloved partner, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish for the rest of our lives, according to God's holy law, and we end that by declaring, this is my solemn vow. It's another way of saying, I will put my everything into this marriage right through thick and thin. But then sometimes something goes sideways. That couple gets in trouble. Maybe one person has decided that they didn't really know what they were doing on their wedding day. They were, they were too young or too new to all of this. Or that they've just changed and moved in another direction. Maybe there's been a big betrayal, perhaps an adultery. Or what seems to be a series of small betrayals that just gnaw away at the covenant. One partner's life spirals into addictions or they become manipulative or abusive Things simply can't hold. There are, quite sadly, any number of variations I could list, many of which indicate a serious breach of the covenant by one partner or the other. Sometimes things just reach a point where 
the other partner has to back away from the broken covenant for the sake of their own safety or sanity or maybe for the sake of the children. Anyone who has honestly committed themselves in love and sincerity to another person in marriage can never see it all dissolve without knowing full well the heartbreak and disorientation of a marital breach. As most of you here will be aware, I know those things firsthand from the collapse of my own marriage almost seven years ago now. It undid me badly. And I had to lean hard into the support of friends and family, this community, to keep putting one foot in front of the other. In the end, it was the counsel and love of a very wise spiritual mentor who set me on a five-week intensive retreat in the context of the chapel community at King's College in Halifax that helped me really find my feet again. But you know, I still get caught up a little short when a passage like this one comes up in the lectionary. It's hard to not read these words and again wonder, oh, have I failed that badly? Am I someone who has, in Jesus' terms here, committed adultery? Have I breached one of the most important vows I could have ever made? Those words about divorce and adultery come as part of a flurry of really challenging teachings. But I say to you, Jesus says, that if you are angry with a brother or sister, you will be liable to judgment. If you insult a brother or sister, you will be liable to the council. If you say, you fool, you will be liable to the hell of fire or how about that piece that says that if you look at another person with desire, you're essentially in the same place as someone who's already sleeping with them? How about this? If your right eye causes you to sin, or your right hand causes you to sin, tear it out, lop it off, just throw it away. Better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Now, N.T. Wright is rather clear that, quote, plucking out eyes and cutting off hands are deliberate exaggerations, but they make the point very forcibly. Bishop Wright actually draws a parallel here to the business of not offering a sacrifice at the temple until you've fully reconciled with your neighbor. And he notes that the Galilean Jesus, so from up north, is teaching in Galilee, a long way from Jerusalem. And he has someone heading into the temple with a sacrificial gift when they suddenly recall, oh, I have this unresolved grudge with someone back home. And he says they're to leave the animal right there, go home and reconcile, and then return which, as Bishop Wright observes, is probably a week-long task, given that where Jesus is teaching in Galilee is that three-day journey away. It's three days down, three days back. You get the picture. 
There are, Bishop Wright maintains, some very intentional exaggerations at work here in the Sermon on the Mount, but they aren't meant to downplay the force of Jesus' message. In fact, he says they're probably meant to add some extra emphasis. This is very serious business. And here, Amy Oden comments, No longer do the teachings on murder and adultery apply strictly to acts of murder and adultery. Instead, they become doorways into the examination of many internal dynamics as well as external behavior of one's life. Anger, derision, slander, false generosity, litigiousness, arrogance, lust, temptation, alienation, divorce, and religious speech. And then she is quick to add a comment that says, quote, Jesus' reframing of righteousness exposes the easy truces we make. The easy truces, which is quite a statement. So she continues, we can pat ourselves on the back for not committing adultery while we ruin the reputation of a co-worker through our words. We even call that stabbing someone in the back. The notion that we must reconcile with anyone who has something against us before we can give our gifts to God stops us in our tracks. There is no easy, private relationship to God in these words. Resentment, alienation, and estrangement from others prevent me from even giving my gifts to God. To which... Bishop Wright then adds a significant insight. He says, Throughout this chapter, Jesus is not just giving moral commands. He's unveiling a whole new way of being human. No wonder it looks strange. But Jesus himself pioneered it and invites us to follow. He is unveiling a whole new way of being human and invites us to follow. And I believe that's very much the case. We are meant to do all we can to live into the mandates that Jesus sets forth in the Sermon on the Mount. Our vows matter. Our relationships to others matter. What we do with our anger or our resentments matter. And, as Amy Oden points out, our speech about one another matters. That's just true. And yet, we do live under the extraordinary grace of Christ's cross, of which Paul writes in the epistle to the Colossians that, quote, through Christ God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of his cross. That doesn't mean that I can arbitrarily choose to ignore the powerful challenges of the Sermon on the Mount. No, by no means. But it does mean that even my failures are counted in the all things of the Colossians passage. 
It means that after something so devastating as the collapse of a marriage, I can trust that friends and church folk and even the angels of God will gather round, pull me up from the ground, dust me off, and direct my sight yet again to the horizon that is both Christ's cross and Christ's resurrection. It means that a spiritual director can help me to have the courage to look at my failings straight in the eye. And then he can say to me, the Lord has put away all your sins. Go in peace and, here's where it becomes most poignant, go in peace and pray for me, a sinner. That's what a spiritual director says to you in confession. Your sins are gone. Now go in peace and pray for me, a sinner. It means that we can wrestle yet again in hard biblical texts and walk away on a night like tonight with something new or something renewed. It means that our sins and fears and failings will not have the final word. They never do because Christ is the final word. It is simply true. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. This has been a sermon podcast from St. Benedict's Table. For information on our church and to access the full catalog of our podcasts going all the way back to 2006, visit us online at stbenedictstable.ca. In addition, if you are interested in supporting our online work, you can find information on the website using the Donate button located on the top right-hand corner. Thanks for listening.